So open your Bible with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 6. One of them is this. If you're watching us today because you could not get here today, not only watch us, but take a moment on your social media, if you're watching on social media, and share the service uh, on, your so- on your social media, on your fa- on Facebook wall or on your uh, Twitter account. Share that so that others can tune in with us this morning and maybe see our service and be a part of our church for the very first time. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our passion Our desire, our goal, our aim is to learn to walk with you. Lord, just to simplify our spiritual lives, we talk about a lot of things, but really fundamentally at the foundation level of our spiritual lives is to learn to walk with you. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to enhance that relationship to grow that fellowship, to recognize that you created man to walk with him. In the garden, Lord, you placed Adam and you intended to have fellowship. You came in the garden to walk with Adam, but he had sinned and the fellowship was broken. But Lord, through the Lord Jesus, it is restored. And I pray that you'll help us to learn through these messages about what it means to walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Our focus in these messages is simple. It's walking with God. And my desire is to encourage in all of us, including this preacher, that we would learn to walk with God on a daily basis. Our case study is the man Noah. Noah is a man that the scripture says walked with God. Actually, there are three men in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that are said to have walked with God. One of them is Noah here that we're studying. Another is Levi, and we learn about that in Malachi chapter 2. As the prophet is speaking to the people, he talks about Levi and how Levi walked with God. And then, of course, the great-grandfather of Noah, his name was Enoch. Those three men, specifically, it says they walked with God. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't others that walked with God, but it means that those three were pointed out and distinguished from the others as being people who walked with God. 
And in our study on these Sunday mornings, our case study is this man, Noah. In the context in which this case study, this man, Noah, was walking with God were the evil days of the antediluvian period, that period prior to the flood when God destroyed all of the earth. Those days were days of great wickedness. Those days were days of great evil. And the emphasis of last mes- the last message was that even in the midst of all of that evil and ungodliness, Noah walked with God. And even in the midst of the days in which we live, we too can walk with God. Just because we live in a wicked day doesn't mean that that precludes us from being able to walk faithfully with our Lord. Noah did so in the midst of a day of great evil. As you've been looking through this text with me and reading through it a few minutes ago, there were some words that we looked at previously, but let me just point them out to you. In verse 4, it talks about the wickedness, the the wickedness of man. Uh, In verse 5, it says that the evil was continuous. There was continual evil that was going on that went all the way to the intents of the heart. This wasn't an occasional accident. This was something that came from the plans of the individual's hearts so that they were always committing evil. In verses 11 and 12, where we did not read this morning, it says three times that the earth is corrupt. Three times it says it's corrupt, it's corrupt, it's corrupt. In verses 11 and 13, it says violence filled the land. And I told you that the word for violence is the Hebrew word Hamas. Uh, They had violence throughout the land everywhere. And then there were these unusual characters that are mentioned in verses 2 and 3 and 4, where the sons of of God and the daughters of men came together and they produced a generation that are called giants. And we talked a good bit about what those were and who those were and the different views of who those are. But those giants were men of renown. They were men who fell on others. They were men who were exercising their evil against other people. So that when you stop and you look at the context in which Noah was walking with God, it was a context of great ungodliness and a context of great evil. Now, think with me as we move forward from that point today about what was going on around this time when Noah is alive. Did you know that from Adam to the flood, from Adam to the flood is approximately 1,650 years? Now, think about that, 1,650 years from the birth of Seth that comes at the end of chapter 4 till you get all the way over into chapters 6, 7, and 8, and 9 that deal with the flood, you're looking at a gap of time of approximately 1,650 years. In other words, when you start looking at this story and you follow this story through, you begin to recognize that sin began in the garden with Adam. Seth was ultimately born to Adam and Eve, and the godly line was produced through Seth. But even amidst the godly line through Seth, there was a downward pull toward evil. 
like water that's swirling and being sucked lower. It's constantly going on in this society. For how long? For 1,650 years. It might have started at a higher point, but all along the way, it's moving lower and lower And sin is getting worse and worse until you come to the days of Noah. And those days are filled with even the intents of the heart being greatly wicked. Evil everywhere, violence everywhere. These unusual individuals called giants are translated maybe in your translation as fallen ones that that are roaming the earth and exercising this violence against everyone. And then stop and think about this. Dr. John Whitcomb and Dr. Henry Morris are two men who spent their entire careers studying the antediluvian period and studying the flood of Noah. Those two men used a conservative rate of population growth, not, not the average rate. They used a very conservative rate of population growth. And they coupled that with the long lifespans that people live at this particular point in history. And they estimated that there could have been as many as one billion people on earth at that time. This is no small problem. This isn't a little localized issue. This isn't one little city that's having a difficulty and they're having a real problem. This is a worldwide matter. This is something that's permeating every society, every aspect of society, every person in society. The evil is growing worse and worse. Maybe as many as one billion people that are being affected. Just to help you get a feel for one billion people, Uh, The world's population in 1850 was a little over 1 billion people. Today, the population is 8 billion. They tell us by the end of this century, it'll be over 10 billion people. But this day of Noah would have been like the 1850s. There would have been a billion, as many as a billion people on earth. And what does it say about them? All of them. Their intents of their heart are evil continually. These giants are roaming the land and exercising uh, violence, and violence is everywhere, for that matter, in the land. Wickedness prevails everywhere. Can you imagine for a moment evil for 1,650 years getting worse and worse and worse, and as the population grows, it only grows in its intensity? Can you imagine an evil person living 600 years, 700 years? 800 years, and just think about how much evil would have multiplied over the course. I mean, we have problems with our own selves for 80 or 90 or 100 years. Can you imagine 200 or 300 or 400 or 500 years? And so the evil was proliferating. It was growing everywhere. It was constantly on the rise, and everywhere you looked, you saw this evil, and yet... In spite of that wickedness, in spite of a 1,650-year 1600 downward spiral, in spite of this booming population where the evil was permeating every aspect of that population, Noah was found to be a man who walked with God. Now, if you're keeping the outline in the notes, those of you that are watching us, those of you that are in the service, that first note is the wickedness, the wickedness. But the second point of this particular study is the warning. 
After we see the wickedness of the day in which Noah lived, then we hear the warning that God, that God gives. God is seeing all of this. The Bible says that God cannot look on evil. But to not be able to look on evil doesn't mean that God doesn't see something as if it's not there. It means that God cannot look on it with favor. He cannot merely pass by it. He has to deal with it because not only is he a God of love, he's a God of justice. And so he has to deal with this evil, and God cannot look on it in a favorable way. God sees what's going on, and he sees this downward spiral of mankind, and he understands that it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And so God, seeing all of this, says something very specific. Notice verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. How do you think God feels when he looks out and he sees our own individual sinfulness? How do you think God feels when he looks out and he sees the wickedness of the world around us, the wickedness of the secular society, the wickedness sometimes that's even in our churches? What do you think God feels when God looks out and he sees that? He looks out and he sees and feels exactly as he did in the days of Noah. He's grieved to his heart. He's very much like the father of the prodigal son. Can you imagine as your son comes to you and your son asks for his inheritance, basically saying, I don't want anything else to do with you, Dad. I don't want anything else to do with our family. I want to go live my own life, and I don't want you to have any control over my life. I want to go be on my own. I want to be an independent man. And he takes what his father gives to him, and he ends up squandering it. But think for a moment how the father must have felt. As he went out every day and he looked over the horizon hoping that this would be the day that he would see his son and knowing where this was going to take his son, that it was a downward spiral that would lead him to things that were worse and worse and worse until it does. It puts him in the lowest place a Jewish man could possibly be. And that father, you can imagine, was grieving. He's grieving. Can I tell you how God feels about sin? God grieves. Yes, God is just, and God's going to deal with it, but God first grieves over it, and God is patient with mankind, and God is enduring in that patience with mankind, and here he's patient. He's enduring 1,650 year, years, a growth po of a population to possibly a billion people, and the evil is proliferating everywhere, and God is grieving as he watches it. This wasn't what God intended this earth to be. By the way, this isn't what God intended this earth to be for us either. God intended for Adam and Eve to live in this idyllic garden environment, to live in this incredibly beautiful and wonderful world that he had created, and to walk with him in fellowship. But what was it that broke the fellowship? What was it that broke the relationship? It was the sin of Adam and Eve, specifically the sin of Adam, that broke the fellowship, the relationship with God, and plunged all of mankind under the curse of sin so that the curse is ever at work. And when God looks and God sees sin, your sin, your children's sin, my sin, my children's sin, when God sees it, God grieves. The New Testament talks about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Do you know where the Holy Spirit lives in a New Testament believer? The Holy Spirit lives within each of us. 
Each of us are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by the actions and the attitudes and the things that we do in our lives that are dishonoring to God. And God is grieved over it. You say, I don't feel God's closeness. and I don't feel his nearness. Could it be that there's something in your life that's grieving God? And until you make it right with God, you're never going to have that fellowship renewed and restored. Here were these people who were filled with the evil and the wickedness of their day, and it was only getting worse and worse until every person was, uh, was evil continually, except for Noah and his family. They were evil continually. I should say there are some other exceptions. There was Enoch. There was Methuselah. There was Lamech, the father of Noah. But I mean, there's very few people of that day. And by the time you get to Noah's day, all of them had already died except for Methuselah. And Methuselah dies in the year that the flood begins so that all that's left is Noah and his family. And God looks out and he sees all of these people down to one single family alone that is living for him and seeking him. He looks out and he's grieved over sin. I don't know where we get the idea that because God is love, that God just overlooks sin and passes it by. That isn't love at all. Love isn't some squishy kind of a thing where God just looks at and approves of everything that we do. Love is that which grieves when he sees us sin and brings us to a place of conviction so that we might get right the sins that we're committing, and that we might abandon those sins. And here, in Noah's day, God is looking out, wanting for someone to be able to turn the tide, someone other than Noah to turn the tide, and yet generation after generation after generation just continue in the degradation, just continue to deepen their depravity. And the result is that God says, I've had enough. Can I just stop for a moment? Can I just remind you that God is patient? God, not only is, is God loving and is God just, but God, and, and then God grieves, but God is patient. He has waited. As a matter of fact, we'll see this in a few, few minutes. He has waited. He has waited. He has waited for people to turn from their sins until he's reached the place that they've exhausted his patience and God says, I'm going to act. And what does God do? Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, for I am sorry that I have made them. In other words, he says, I'm going to destroy them all that is, except for Noah and his three sons and their wives. I'm going to destroy them all. I remind you again that Enoch is gone. Methuselah will go before the flood begins. Lamech is gone. All that is left is Noah and his own family. And God says, I am grieved over what I see, and I will not let it continue. And God sends the warning. It should be noted by all of us, if you'll look at verse 12, that this is a worldwide flood. There's a billion people. That's not just one little tiny area. That's not one little Middle Eastern area. If there's one billion people, that's spread out over the whole earth. 
And 13 times you find a phrase that we'll find here in verse 12. Look at it. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt for, here it is, all flesh had corrupted their way. Turn over a page to verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come. Or you get down to verse 17. And behold, I myself in bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh. Or down to verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh. That's just one chapter. You go on following that phrase, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, you find that phrase 13 times. How many people is God going to destroy in the flood? He's going to destroy all flesh. Can you imagine? All flesh is going to be destroyed. Nobody is going to be left except for Noah, his sons, and their children or excuse me, their wives. Can you imagine? Everybody is going to be destroyed. And before you you get too harsh about this, do you realize that while God will not destroy the earth again by a flood, that God is going to destroy the earth again? He's going to? Not only will he destroy all flesh, 13 times he says that from chapters 6 to 9, he's also going to shorten the age of that men can live. He's going to shorten that time that men can live to 120 years. That'll be the max. And after the flood, what you begin to see is this downward trend in the length of people's lives until you get to Moses. And how many years does Moses live? Moses lives 120 years. 120 years. In other words, he's saying that I'm going to curtail the amount and the length of the evil that people can do. I'm not going to let them live 500 and 600 and 700 years and keep on proliferating this evil over and over. I'm going to cut it short. I'm not going to let it continue. Can you imagine what would have happened if Saddam had lived 500 years? Or if Stalin had lived 600 years? Or if Hitler had lived 700 years? Can you imagine the sheer evil that would have resulted by the length of those kinds of lives, those kinds of years? Can you imagine the kind of evil that would have proliferated everywhere? And God says, I'm going to destroy it all. And not only am I going to destroy it all, but I'm going to shorten the lifespan so that you cannot go on committing that kind of evil in such long periods of time. I mean, God means business here. But inevitably, somebody says, Pastor, do you really believe that the whole earth was flooded? Do you think I'd say this to you if I didn't believe it? You think I'd ask that question if I didn't believe it? You better believe the entire earth was flooded. I believe science proves that, though they overlook it. Christian science people, I want to be careful saying Christian science, Christian scientists, people who have a biblical worldview can see in the crust of the earth, the reality of the worldwide flood. But just so you know, Jesus believed the story of Noah was a historical account and that there was a worldwide flood. In Matthew chapter 24, he says that as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. 
What was it like in those days? It was a day when people were just living their lives and going about their lives, and evil was everywhere, and wickedness was constant. It was proliferating amongst everybody. It continued not for 70 years or 80 years or 90 years. It went on 100 and 200 and 500 and 600 years. There's giants that are living in the earth that are falling on people, and they're committing all kinds of violence against people. Can you imagine and Jesus said he believed the story was a historical narrative. But it wasn't just Jesus. The author of Hebrews believed the story of Noah was a historically accurate record. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, he says that by faith Noah built this ark to the saving of these eight people. The author of Hebrews believed that the story of Noah and the flood of this world was, in fact, a historically accurate story. But can I also tell you that Peter believed it? And this is where I want you to turn with me. We're going to look at two places in the two letters of Peter. If you'll look back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 first. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Not only did Jesus believe the story was historically accurate, and the writer of authors, uh, Hebrews believed the story was ac accurate, so did Peter believe that the story was accurate. Verse 20. Who, who formerly were disobedient, talking about these fallen angels, when once the divine suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. And Peter authenticates the historicity of the Noah flood, the flood of Noah's day. Turn over to 2 Peter for a moment. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Notice he says, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. We're going there next message, the next message. Saved Noah, one of eight, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Did Jesus believe it was historically accurate? Absolutely. Did the writer of Hebrews believe it was historically accurate? Absolutely. Did Peter believe that it was historically accurate? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it becomes, it becomes the illustration of what's going to happen one day, even in this world. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Peter for a moment. And notice what he says here. Verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. For this they willingly forgot, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. In other words, unlike the evolutionists who believe this was a hot mass, a hot mass of, of earth at one time, in other words, creation was cool, covered by water, verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. Verse 5, he says, they willfully forget. That is, they, they don't uh, not just not know it. They know it, and they willfully forget it. There is nobody who is without excuse, Romans chapter 1 says. They willfully forget. And what are the three things they willfully forget? They forget that and deny that God created the world. 
They forget and deny that God judged the world with a cataclysmic flood, and they forget and they deny that God says, I'm going to do it again. I'm not going to do it with water. What was God's promise that there would never be another worldwide flood? It was a rainbow, and aren't they beautiful? Saw a picture recently from South Florida. Somebody put on social media, had a double rainbow. And I'm thinking, Lord, I could have been called to Florida. That would have been all right. <laughs> Except that I love these people. I could, we could all just move to South Florida. And we could see rainbows even in the wintertime. How many of you vote for that? We just all moved to Florida. <laughs> Can you imagine? He says that they denied the creation, they denied that there was a worldwide flood, and they denied that there's going to be another judgment on this earth, and that second judgment won't be a judgment by water. The second judgment will be by fire, and God's going to make a what? What does Revelation say? He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And so what you see is a warning that is given. Go back with me to Genesis you see a warning that is given, and I just want to make sure you know that God gives that same warning to the world in which we live. God gives a warning to us as well, but the question that begs asking is this one. How is it, amidst the wickedness of the world in which he lived, and the certain judgment that was going to come, executed by the Almighty God, how is it that Noah was able to escape it. And the answer is found in one word. And may I just say that the only escape today from the judgment of God, it may be that fiery judgment that yes to come, but more likely it's going to be this one from Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the, the judgment. How are we going to escape the judgment where we're turned away from God, where we're punished for our own sins, where we're sent to the lake of fire for eternity. How do we escape this judgment? It's all wrapped up in one simple little word. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, but what an incredible adversative. Unlike everybody else that was living in that day, who had forgotten God. Enoch's gone, Methuselah will be gone, Lamech is gone. Unlike all of the others that were living in that day, there was one man, one man that found, here's the word, grace in the eyes of the Lord. Can I tell you the greatest need today is for men and women to find the grace of God. Can I shock you with one other detail just so that you don't miss this before we talk further about grace? This is one man who found grace. One man who found grace who spreads it to his family. One man. But did you know that Noah had brothers and sisters? Look with me, if you will, back to chapter 5, verse 30. After he begot Noah, that's Lamech, after Lamech begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years 
and had sons and daughters. And yet only one of Lamech's children, only one of Lamech's children found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Can you imagine for a moment, just stop here with me for a moment. When the rain begins to fall, Noah and his family have gathered the animals. They're on the ark, these three floors of the ark, this football field and a half-size ark. It's more like a ship. All the supplies are there for the length of the ark. The trip of the ark will take. Now it's time for Noah and his sons and their wives to go on the ark. And what happens? It says that God shuts the door behind them so that nobody else can get on the ark because they have rejected God again and again and again. They have rejected his grace over and over and over again. Can you imagine being on the inside of that ark and knowing that you have brothers and sisters, not just neighbors, not just friends or co-laborers, not that those are less important, but just understand the most important people in your life are your own family. Can you imagine his own brothers and sisters are on the outside of the ark and as the water is rising and they can't stay afloat any longer? Can you imagine the brokenness that Noah must have felt? By the way, the grace of God was available to everyone. Just like the grace of God is available to everyone today, nobody is excluded from the grace of God. Nobody is excluded from the grace of God. But only one man in an evil generation found grace. And please understand something. When I say he found grace, I don't mean like he was working for it, that somehow he was digging for it and he ultimately came to it. As a matter of fact, carefully note the order that's given here. Verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That comes before verse 9. Noah was a just man, meaning he was righteous in the way he lived. He was perfect, or the word is the idea of blameless. He was blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God before he was a just man, before he was a perfect man or a blameless man in his generation, before he walked with God. First, he had to find grace. You understand what grace is? At the root of the word grace is the idea of somebody who stoops or bends. It's the idea of someone who is superior in person condescending to somebody who is inferior in person. And it becomes the picture of what grace is. Here is God's reaching out, condescending to a man living in an evil generation and saying, here's my grace. And how does Noah receive that grace? It can't be by what he did. It can't be by his, his righteousness or his blamelessness or that he walked with God. How does he receive that grace? He receives it the same way every one of us receives the grace of God. Hebrews 11, 7 tells you, by faith, Noah. 
How do you receive the grace of God where God stoops to us, the superior stoops to the inferior? The one who is the all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-loving God stooped to those of us who are utterly and absolutely sinful. How do we receive that unmerited, undeserved grace of God? You receive it one way and one way alone. You receive it by faith. And Noah believed God And what does he find when he believes God? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? Here is a man who's living in a day of great evil and wickedness. And here is a man who could have been swept away with it. His brothers and sisters were swept away with it. But Noah saw God and by faith he trusted in God And through that channel of faith, faith comes to us as a gift. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes as a gift. Through faith, through that channel, through that conduit, comes the grace of God. And the grace of God not only saved Noah and his wife, it saved his three sons and his three daughters-in-law. And the only way you and I will escape the judgment to come is if we come to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in faith. What does Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say? For by grace you are saved. What? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. That's not the faith. That's this whole process of salvation. For by grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the, what's the word? Here's the word for grace. It is the gift of God. Not of works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God. I want to show you my grace. I want to give you my grace. I want you to experience my grace. But you got to come to me in faith. And you got to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're watching the service or maybe you're sitting here with me and you've heard me preach again and again and again about the importance of being ready to escape the judgment of God that's coming. Yes, there's a fiery judgment that's coming to the whole earth at some point in the future, but there is a judgment that awaits us right after death. It's appointed a man wants to die after this, the judgment. And the only way to escape that judgment is to find grace. And the only way you can find grace is by faith. There is no other way. You have to come and experience his grace by faith and by faith alone. It's not by your church membership It's not by your friendship with a pastor or a priest. It's not by counting the rosary beads. It's not by your religious ceremony. It's not by your works or your good deeds. If you come to experience the grace of God, you will experience the same way everybody else experiences it, and he's offering it to you today. He's saying, my grace. Do you think anybody else could have found that grace? Well, Enoch did, right? Methuselah did. Lamech did. 
and Noah did. There may have been others that were living in that day who found that same grace but who died before the flood came. But the only way to experience that grace is to come to God and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to heaven. Please listen to me today. In an evil world in which we live, we can walk with God, but not until you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Not until by faith you have trusted in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess I wonder today how many will hear the warning and they'll heed the warning. Remember the story in Luke chapter 17? There was a rich man, says he fared sumptuously, had everything he wanted. There was a poor man named Lazarus who ate the crumbs. He ate out of the dumpster, if you will. He ate what was left over that fell off the table. And it contrasts these two stories, these two incredible stories. It contrasts them. But then it shows them both experiencing exactly the same thing. Do you know what both of them experienced alike? One thing. They both died. Abraham, excuse me, Lazarus is carried into Abraham's bosom, a picture, if you will, for paradise, a, a picture, if you will, for us of heaven. He's carried into Abraham's bosom. But it says about the rich man who had rejected God, who didn't heed the warnings, that in hell he opened his eyes. Hear the words, being in torment. He said, Abraham, could you send somebody from where you are with just a drop of water and put it on the tip of my tongue? For I am parched and I am burning in this fire. He remembered the opportunities of hearing the warning and failing to find grace. He remembers it. But then he says something incredible. He thinks about his five brothers. And he says, for I have... Verse 27, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Why would you want them to go to your father's house? Now listen. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest for fear that, if you will, they also come to this place of torment. Who is he thinking of in those moments when he's experiencing the just judgment of his own sins, having failed to heed the warnings, having failed to find the grace that Lazarus found? Who is he thinking of? Like Noah may have been thinking about his brothers and sisters that didn't get on the ark, he was thinking about his five brothers, and he desperately didn't want them to wake up separated from God as he was separated from God. Are you watching today? Are you in this service today? The warning, the warning is there is a judgment to come 
And those that escape the judgment and get taken to heaven to be with God, those who have their sins forgiven become the possessors of eternal life. Those who become the children of God are the ones who find grace. And the only ones who find grace are those who by faith, by faith, trust Jesus Christ. Will you heed the warning? Will you heed the warning, those of you? Will you heed the warning? On December the 26, 2004, the world watched in horror as the story of the tsunami disaster in Southeast Asia unfolded. There was an earthquake beneath the Indian Ocean that triggered a tidal wave that was as high as 100 feet tall in some places, and it came crashing onto shore across that entire region. The tsunami did damage as far as the east coast of Africa. That's nearly 5,000 miles away. There were more than 250,000 people who died in the rampaging waters and the devastation that followed. There were entire island populations and coastal villages that were wiped out. I mean, every man, every woman, every child was wiped out in some cases. That is, except for one notable exception. There's a group of people called the Morgan Sea Gypsies. They're a small tribe of fishermen, and they spend most of their year on boats between India, Indonesia, and Thailand. And each December, between fishing seasons, they live in small thatched huts on the beaches of Thailand. On that December day, they were living directly in the path of a certain disaster. Yet every single member of the tribe survived while most of their neighbors disappeared in the rampaging waters. You want to know why? The tribal chief explains that for generations, these are his words, for generations our fathers warned us that if the waters ever receded fast, they would quickly reappear in the same quantity in which they disappeared. So that on December the 26th, when the sea suddenly drained away, there were a lot of people who went out onto the beach and began picking up the fish that were laying there on the sand. But not the Morgan Sea Gypsies. The chief ordered his tribe to run in the opposite direction to the mountains and to safety. And when the tsunami hit, the entire tribe was spared. Why? They make my point. They heard the warning and they acted on it. Do you hear the warning today? I don't ever like to talk about the judgment of God, but the judgment of God is a reality. And that's the reality that all of us have to face. And the only escape of that reality is that we find grace through faith.